Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. The word of the Lord. Lord, bless as we study this passage of Scripture again today. Give us understanding and practical application by the power and presence of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been looking at this verse. Indeed, we've been looking at this whole section for some time. And that's why I have this handout, so that you can review it. Because most people don't understand the Bible. Why do most people not understand the Bible? Because they read the Bible the way that we used to do, Sandy and I used to do with our children at the supper table. We would have a loaf of, uh, plastic loaf of bread with little cards in it. We'd pull a card out and we would read or we'd have the older children read that verse. Most people read the Bible a verse here and a verse there. And they may have a favorite Psalm like Psalm 23. But most people don't read the Bible through. And when you read the Bible through consistently, you begin to really get the big picture. And so the big picture is Israel has been sent into captivity because of her sins against God. And now it's time for Israel to return home. And so Daniel has begun to seek God in the scriptures, going specifically to the prophet Jeremiah and discovering that it's time for the captivity of Israel to come to an end. The Babylonian Empire has collapsed. They were an impregnable city. And yet they were collapsed because the Iranians and the Medes were very good civil engineers. They had their Army Corps of Engineers and they were able to divert the water so that they were able to walk in inside the city of Babylon and slaughter people. But they spared Daniel because God had a special purpose for this old man. And so he sought God. And he gets a revelation when God sends the angel Gabriel to him. And in verse 24, we discovered the first group of those things. We saw last week that Jesus finished transgression. He put an end to sin. He atoned for wickedness and he brought in everlasting righteousness. We showed that absolutely unequivocally, irrefutably, by looking at the book of Hebrews. You cannot fail to understand that this pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ and His work in dying on the cross in place of your sins and my sins, and also to bring in everlasting righteousness. That is the very righteousness of God that's credited to your account and mine when we put our trust in Christ. We want to look at the fifth thing here today and focus only on it, and that is to seal up vision and prophecy. What does it mean? It's something that Jesus did in the first century. So turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and this is a great, great truth. Hebrews, if people could read the book of Hebrews for themselves, and you'll find this on page 1862, page 1862. If people would read the book of Hebrews, it would resolve virtually every issue regarding Bible prophecy. 
I want to say it again. If people would read and understand the book of Hebrews, they would understand virtually every controversial issue about Bible prophecy. Let's start at Hebrews 1.1. Notice what the writer of Hebrews, who may have been Paul, we don't know. In the past, God spoke to our, father, our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. How did, how did he do that? Well, he spoke through the prophets. He spoke through people like David. David was both a king and a prophet. He spoke through signs and wonders. He spoke through the tabernacle. The tabernacle itself, and later the temple, the tabernacle itself is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews makes it very, very plain. And so God spoke to people in the Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament in the past. God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times. There were times that there was no prophetic word on earth, and people lamented it. So we don't see any signs anymore. One of the Psalms is so depressing. It never mentions anything full of hope at all. And he says, we no longer see the things our ancestors saw. We're desolate, Lord. We need help. And it ends on a pretty hopeless note. Sometimes you go out of church without hope. And sometimes that's God's will. Why? Because God wants you to realize the only hope you've got is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I try to make it my goal that you never leave here without hope. The darkest sermon I ever preached was on Holy Saturday night when we ended the service in darkness anticipating the resurrection of Jesus. That's the darkest day of the year. That's when Jesus was in Sheol. That's before he rose from the dead. But I want, as an ordinary course, always to bring us back to hope. But if you look at the Old Testament, it speaks to us so eloquently about the Lord Jesus Christ through it, the prophets at many times and in various ways. But notice this in verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. In these last days, what does that mean? That means... In 30 A.D., that means in 70 A.D., that means in 2022 A.D. We are living at the end of those days. What does it mean, those last days? It means the end of the Old Testament era. The end of the Old Testament era. The Old Testament is a completed book. Jesus said in, in Matthew 5, he said, Don't think I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And what that's saying is this. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a fulfilled book. Well, does that mean it has nothing to say to us today? Of course not. That's the Bible of the New Testament. That when the apostles referred to Scripture, they were always thinking about verses in the Old Testament. They quote the Old Testament again and again and again because the Old Testament is pregnant with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? The Old Testament isn't pregnant anymore. Because when the Lord Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, when he was circumcised on the eighth day, 
When on the 40th day he was dedicated in the temple of God in Jerusalem, when he went up from Nazareth with his parents to the Passover when he was 12 years old in Jerusalem, when he was anointed with the Holy Spirit as John the Baptist baptized him, when he was crucified, dead, and buried, and rose again from the dead and ascended to the Father, he purchased the Holy Spirit for you and me, and he fulfilled the Old Testament. That's why when we read the Old Testament, we're reading Christian book. need to always remember that. Genesis all the way through Second Chronicles. Because the Hebrew Bible has exactly the same books in it as your Bible that you have in those pews. It's just the order of the books is different. The last book of the Hebrew Bible is 2 Chronicles because they have a different arrangement. But from Genesis to 2 Chronicles, it's a Christian book. Only a born-again Christian who's looking for Jesus can understand the Old Testament. A person may have vast amounts of knowledge and not understand the Old Testament at all because it's a Christian book. And so as you read the Old Testament, you discover things such as Psalm 22. How can you fail to miss? It's all about Jesus. The very words that Jesus uttered on the cross when he said in Aramaic, which was his native language, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cites those words from Psalm 22. When he talks about his bones being out of joint, Psalm 22. When he talks about his, his hands and feet being pierced, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the whole Old Testament is about Jesus. The Holy Spirit was working through godly people to give His Word in the Old Testament and to have it recorded. And so the whole Old Testament was completed. And then it began to be translated a couple of hundred years before Jesus from Hebrew into Greek. And we call that the Septuagint. So what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us is, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But at the end of those days, that's a better way of rendering it. But at the end of those days, that is at the end of the Old Testament era, he spoke to us by his son. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, let's say, just take a quick right turn to uh, one of, one of uh, two things written in the Bible that were written by Jesus' half-brothers. The one was J the epistle of James is written by a half-brother of Jesus. And the other one, the epistle of Jude, was written by a half-brother of Jesus. Those were two full brothers, full-blooded brothers. And if you look at page 1909, you discover something. And that is in verse 3, Jude 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. What's he saying? He's saying that the Bible, the Bible is God's yardstick. Just as I had the boys handle my little straight edge that's a ruler six inches long, I use it not to measure 
but I use it to draw a straight line in my Bible when I find something I want to remember. And God has given us the whole Christian faith in the Bible. So notice what he says here. He says, the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. In other words, the entire body of Christian truth has been put into the Bible. And that's why we can say that the Bible is God's infallible word. It doesn't err in what it's designed to teach. It's God's infallible word. And so when somebody has an interpretation, well, the Bible means this to me. I remember because I lost 42 semester hours when I had to leave a particular school uh, midterm and many courses didn't transfer. I still finished in 1969, but in December, not in May. So I had to take a lot of filler courses. And I discovered when you're taking a really tough course, like zoology, where you have to memorize so many things so that you can write a three-hour essay tracing evolution according to evolutionary theory, it's really wise to take a course that's really, really easy. And so that summer of difficult courses, I took landscape painting and portrait painting because I didn't have to study and because the cockamamie teacher who was any I won't go into her history but she was an interesting woman I'll simply say this that she was living with a ministerial student while her husband was serving in Vietnam she was very interesting but it was it was very useful to me to take classes in painting even though I'm no painter at all. It was very good to take painting so that I could devote my mind and my time to memorizing all these technical terms. And I got 100 on the essay at the end. It was long and arduous. But I was grateful for painting. And you know what? Abstract art, she loved abstract art. And, and uh, so I had a friend who took a board and put canvas on it and sprayed various colors on it. And wow. So some people pick up the Bible and say, well, that doesn't mean that to me. That's why I think that most, quote, Bible studies are a waste of time. Well, this means this to me. That means that to me. Just like my friend John Green, who's been with the Lord many years, painted all these colors, red, black, green, and what does it mean? I don't know. And then on Friday, I lost a very dear friend of mine who was a Korean War veteran, and he painted a portrait of me. And um, I had a friend of mine say, it doesn't look anything like you. And the reason it didn't look anything like me was when Joe Apolucci, my very dear friend who died Friday, he was trying to look beyond what you see with the natural eye to see what was within. And so his painting, which is in my living room, and when I do his funeral in a couple of weeks, it'll go back in the sanctuary of the church where he dedicated it. Well, what does it mean? And so I would ask Joe, well, Joe, what does that mean? He said... It's up to you to decide. <laughs> well, that's how many people approach the Bible. They say, well, what does this mean? Well, I don't know, but this is what it means to me. Listen, the Bible is a book that was designed to be understood. And those things that are essential to know for salvation 
are clearly taught in one place or another so that lazy people, no, so that those who are diligent to study can come to an assurance exactly what the Bible says. And in our confession of faith, it says those things that are essential to know for salvation have been fully imparted into Scripture and nothing is to be added to it because those former ways of God making that truth, the truth that's essential to know for salvation, have ended. And so when we look at a passage like Hebrews chapter 1, we have a statement reminding us that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and that God's revelation ended at that point. What does that mean? It means that the yardstick was completed, that the ruler, as I'm holding the straight edge in my hand, that when the last book of the Bible was penned, it means that God completed the ruler, the yardstick. So you have an absolute standard of truth to measure everything by. Now, there are two things we need to add to that as we turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. The Gospel of John, chapter 5. So as we go there, John chapter 5, page 1655, top of the page, and uh, we're going to look at verse 39 and verse 40. He says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Now, here's what's important. What's important is that we have an absolute standard of truth, but we understand that God still speaks today. How does He speak today? He speaks fundamentally through the Bible. The most basic place that you are likely to hear God talking to you is in church when you gather with other believers. And when the preacher opens the Bible and begins to explain it and apply it, suddenly you'll have a thought. I ought to go talk to Mrs. So-and-so because three weeks ago I was short, I was discourteous, I was rude, I offended her. You ever had a thought like that pop up in church? That's the Spirit of God in a church service when the minister has the Word of God open, is explaining it and applying it, you will get private application of that sermon that nobody else may be getting because nobody else offended Mrs. So-and-so. But you did! And you know it! <laughs> and it's grinding it in. That's why people don't like preachers who preach long. They want a little nice, neat, crafted message that doesn't ever stomp on their toes. But I'm going to tell you, if you never get your toes stomped on in church, you aren't sitting under godly preaching. My job is periodically to stomp on your toe. And what's really good about it is that when a general application from the Bible is delivered from the pulpit, the Holy Ghost is present to give you a specific application of that general principle to your life so you'll say, hmm, I ain't going to enjoy Sunday dinner today. 
So the Spirit of God still speaks today. Absolutely. He still speaks today. He speaks fundamentally through the written Word of God, which is God's infallible yardstick. It's interesting. Our catechism says the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the only rule that God has given. Rule as ruler. Yardstick of truth. A canon was the Greek word because it was a straight read. So God does speak today. And he speaks in a variety of ways. He may speak in a prayer meeting. Seriously. Many, many times in a prayer meeting, people will begin to hear from God as they're praying for other people. When you intercede for another person, God will begin to open your mind to understand some of the things they're going through. You know why most people are not sympathetic to other people? Because they're blind as a bat to other people's problems. You see, every single one of us is a narcissist. That doesn't mean that every single one of us has narcissistic personality disorder. But every single one of us is a narcissist. We look at the world from our own perspective. What God is designed to do is through His Word, as you pray, as you beg God, open my eyes to see what you have for me today. And particularly when you gather together with other believers, God will reveal things to you. Now I want you to see something else. In verse 39, John 5, 39, Jesus is speaking to His unbelieving audience. He's speaking to His unbelieving audience. And He's telling them this, you diligently study the scriptures because you think, you imagine that by them you possess eternal life. What is he saying? He's saying this book itself won't do you any good. What's he really saying? He's saying, these are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Listen, We live in a terrible time in the history of the Christian church. There are all kinds of movements today among good, godly Christian people. They want to go back to this. They want to go back to that. Today is the 513th birthday of John Calvin. I think John Calvin was probably the greatest theologian in the history of the Christian church and certainly in the second millennium of Christianity. I think the greatest theologian in the first millennium of Christianity was St. Augustine, an African bishop. But you know what? I don't want to be known as a Calvinist. I don't want to be known as a Lutheran. I don't want to be known as a Methodist or a Baptist. And I don't want this church or any church I ever pastor to be, we're Calvinists, we're Lutherans, we're Baptists, we're Church of Christ. Do you know that's the most cultic of all? Let me prove it to you. Turn with me, if you would, for a moment. We're coming back to John. But turn to me, if, with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You see, the most cultic are those who don't think they are a cult. Now, I'm not saying Church of Christ are a cult. I am saying this, however. Listen to what he says. He says... And uh, on page 1772, he's appealing in verse 10 about divisions in the church. 
And he tells them exactly where he heard it. But he didn't say, well, you know, I heard somebody told me this. Blah, 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 and they never tell you what it was. I can remember in the 40 years I served that church on Jackson Street in Alexandria, Louisiana, I would have people say, you know, Bob, we've seen some of the people upset about you on this, that, the other. Well, let them come talk to me. Well, they're afraid to come talk to you. I don't know why anybody's ever afraid to come talk to me. I'll say in private, I'm not at all the way I am in the pulpit. In the pulpit, I may be like a lion, but when I sit across the table from somebody, I'm like a lamb. I listen, studying, trying to hear, trying to understand, trying to be a friend. We're afraid to talk to you. Well, why? Well, you intimidate. Well, why don't they invite me into their home? By the way, I'd love to come in your home. Please let me know. I'll come see you, even though I'm not here full-time. I would love to come see you. Now listen to what he says. He says in verse 11, My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that you are quarrel, there are quarrels among you. What I mean, verse 12, is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. The most denominationalistic churches you will ever meet are those that say they're not a denomination. We're just Christians here. Well, you know what? 2,000 years of church history says you just can't be Christians. There's a whole difference between the label that you have outside the door and the spirit that you have inside the church. I beg God, I beg God, I beg God that this church will be a non-denominational church in spirit even though we're part of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You see, it's the spirit that you have inside. Seriously, it's the spirit inside a church. I want this church to be such a church that anybody that loves the Lord Jesus Christ feels welcomed here. Not excluded. Not excluded. Welcomed. I don't want us to be known as Calvinists or Lutherans or Zwinglians or Augustinians or Franciscans. Or go on down the litany of names that people have ascribed. Because this is about Jesus. Now we go back to John chapter 5, page 1655. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So what do we have going on in the modern world? We have liturgical renewal. Nonsense. People try to recapture the past. We're going to have liturgical... Re what they used to do? What kind of clothes did they wear? Listen, I preach in robes. I preached in dog collars. I preached in an open shirt. I would preach in an undershirt if that's what I needed to do. I'd be modest. But listen, people want to get hung up on forms. We need to go back to the past. Well, people, you know where people experienced a lot of the power of God? Brush arbors. The Second Great Awakening in Kentucky and other places, people were going out to brush arbors. What's that? It's uh, being out in Texarkana in the woods uh, with a shelter that's got leaves over it and, and covered up where, you know, hopefully we get a breeze when it gets up to 109. And people are sweating and passing out and bringing water and whatnot. We need to go back to the old days. <laughs> Nonsense. We need to go forward where Christ is. Listen, 
You can change anything you want to in a church. We need to go back to the ancient creeds. Well, the creeds are useful, but the creeds are not a standard of truth. The Bible is the standard of truth. What's the fundamental thing here in John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Do you see the Lord Jesus came to complete, fulfill the Old Testament in all its glory, with all its types and shadows, and he's put everything in a written form in the book. But the book itself won't do you any good. Listen, this book is no good to you unless you find it to be a pathway to lead you to Jesus. You see, this book is no different when you uh, read a verse here and there, but you're just doing it to be ritualistic and fulfill a legalistic commitment. It's not going to do you any good unless it's a pathway to Jesus. God designed the whole Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 to be a map so that every day of your life you will come to Jesus. Because if you're walking with Jesus, you have the standard of truth. Because ultimately the standard of truth isn't even the red letters in the book. And I want to make a comment negatively about red letter Bibles. I hate red letter Bibles. Because those aren't the words of Jesus. Jesus spoke in Aramaic. Those are the words that those who were commissioned by him to put his words on paper wrote. And so as one translated the Aramaic in one way, another another way, we get different things. But it's a complete picture. If I take this music stand over here and I turn it here, and hopefully won't knock over the hymn book, if I take it and I turn it around, you see one thing now, you see another thing now, you see something else now, you see something else now. And the point is, the Gospels give us four pictures of Christ. They're all accurate. The point is that they point you to Jesus. I want to say this. If you took only the red letters, you don't really have the Bible. And all you've got are are the writer's interpretations of what Jesus said, translated through the lens of the Holy Spirit in their experience to give you a picture of Jesus. The red letters are no more the word of Jesus than are the letters of Peter and Paul and James and John. The whole Bible, the Old Testament, Genesis 1-1 should be red letters. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're using the Bible and asking God, speak to me, Lord, speak to me, show me my heart, because the heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful above everything else. And who can know his own heart? It's only as the Holy Spirit takes the written Word of God and opens your eyes as a mirror to see your own filthy, nasty soul that you can deal with sin. You have a filthy, nasty soul. You do. Every Christian, till they go to be with Jesus, has a filthy, nasty soul. We're not who we once were, but we're not who we're going to be. God changes us. But the point is, if you knew yourself the way you really are, you'd be embarrassed to come into this church. If we could project up there, Rusty, you could perhaps project on those screens the imaginations right now. 
the imaginations right now. <laughs> It'd be pretty bad. And you'd be embarrassed. I probably imagine this, that every single one of us here, including the preacher, would be beating a hasty retreat. God gave us His Word. So the Holy Spirit would take that Word and show us ourselves. And then, not leave us there, point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He is the sum and substance of everything. Not just His teachings, His life. He's the pattern for life. But not just that. It's He would live His life out in you. He wants you to be Jesus to other people. He wants, when people meet you, to be reminded of Jesus. Because He wants you to be so full of Jesus that you're no longer thinking the way you used to think. You're no longer looking at the categories of life the way you used to. Our country's dying, dear ones. It's dying because of divisions that have split families apart and churches apart. I want to be able to reach anybody and that when they meet me, something reminds them of Jesus. Because Jesus is the only hope of America. America's going to die. I hope you know that. We're on our last legs. And unless we have revival, it ain't going to be much longer. Our world is going to die. If we don't have revival, it's not going to be much longer. What do we need? We need Jesus. And that's the one thing you've got and I've got to share with the world. Not I'm a Calvinist on John Calvin's 513th birthday. Not that I'm a Lutheran or an Episcopalian. Denominationalism, a denominational spirit is demonic. You hear what I said? A denominational spirit is demonic. People can have all kinds of names out front. But if inside they view themselves as exclusive, as we're the right group, everybody else is wrong, only we're right, separatistic, condemning others, deal the poor girl who's pregnant doesn't know what to do, treat her like trash. I'm going to tell you some of the meanest people I've ever met in my life are church people. What this world needs is Jesus people. People that are so full of Jesus, they just want to say, Honey, come on in here. Let us love on you. Let us help you. We're on your side. We'll walk with you through this. We'll pray for you. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto thee. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. You got that. I got that. So what is the point of the sermon? Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. The fifth thing is that Jesus has completed vision and prophecy. He is the sum and substance of it all. The whole Bible is a red letter book. But it's not about the book. It's about the book pointing you to Jesus so you walk with Him. To be Spirit-filled is to live in the presence of Jesus so that when somebody hurts your feelings, the very next second you pray for them, say, Lord, that hurt my feelings. You tell the Jesus that, not them. Lord, that really hurt my feelings. It really stung. Help me, Lord. And then give it to Jesus. You got to give it to Jesus. That's the secret of a happy life. Do you know that Sandy and I are happy people? 
And we really are happy people. Does that mean we never shed a tear? Oh, we shed tears. We shed tears. We shed many tears. But we're happy people. Why are we happy? We're happy because we strive to be empty of self and to be full of Jesus. And that, dear ones, is the secret of happiness. And I share that with you only to say, that's the secret of happiness. Be full of Jesus. Because He came, Daniel 9, 24, to seal up, to complete, to fulfill vision and prophecy. And He is the fulfillment of it all. Let us pray. Lord, I pray You would fill us full of Jesus so that when we walk by, people don't say, what's that aftershave He's wearing? They say, I I smell, I smell Jesus. I smell Jesus. Lord, this world doesn't need more religious people, doesn't need more denominationalistic spirits. Lord, it needs more of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. May we all know you. May we all strive to walk with you. And the moment you reveal to us that we've taken a misstep, Lord, would you grant us then and there to simply get off a high horse, to stop where we are and say, Jesus, I'm wrong. Help me to make it right. In Jesus' name, amen.